Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. Advancement in technologies and scientific platforms have enabled personalized approaches that acknowledge healthcare shouldn't be one size fits all. I'm here with Viamic's Mindy McGrath and Ryan Hummel to discuss what is driving personalization in healthcare and the impact on both the practice and development of medicine. When we talk about personalization in healthcare, what are we aiming for and what are the primary contributors to achieving these goals? When I think about personalization of healthcare, I think about just how, um, you know, new approaches are kind of coming into the market using technology to really create this personalized experience for each patient. We know that over the last couple of years, there has definitely been a greater expectation from consumers around having, you know, a more personalized and frictionless experience. I think in a recent poll that was taken, about 63% of consumers really expect that from their care providers and from the healthcare system as a whole. And so you see that with the advancement of technologies and with the advancement of different types of policies like the CARES Act, I think what we're seeing is that the healthcare system is really evolving to try to meet the demands, right, of balancing standardized and personalized care at a level of scale that we haven't witnessed before. And in order to realize the promise of personalized care, the entire system, um, it cannot be just one sector. I think it has to go from the way we develop therapies to the way that we deliver to patients has to and is actually evolving. One of the major drivers that is evolving this is data and just the abundance of data. So you think about the fact that over a lifetime, each person generates the equivalent of more than 300 million books of personal and health-related data. And now that we have these technologies like wearables, apps, and digital devices, um, it's just adding to the openness right, of how data is uh, available, how it can be used and connected to create more and greater personalization of healthcare for individuals. Another key to kind of personalization is this idea of connecting data across health systems. And, and we've seen, you know, an explosion of partnerships across health systems and, and other sectors. Um, you know, Google's cloud division, Amazon, you know, all of the all of the big characters that we all know and love have partnerships with some large companies like Amwell, the Mayo Clinic. And I was thinking about this as we were talking about personalization in medicine, and it also creates some potential dilemma for hospitals as they form these partnerships, because this isn't necessarily something that health systems, hospitals, and the provider sector have as a a key competency. You know, when we think about personalization and, and pulling this data worldwide, there's so many examples. And, you know, one of the, the key areas that we talk about is rare diseases, right? An individual doctor or hospital will see so very few of these patients, so they may not identify the patterns. And this, this idea of coagulating data in a really smart way um, will allow uh, these firms and these partnerships that I mentioned before to understand um, and be diagnosed even earlier. Um, and, you know, we were talking recently about the fact that these rare diseases with so few people having them, they, they don't have approved drugs because 
um, you know, estimating the patient population sizes is really tough for these rare diseases. And so, you know, there are so many groups and um, teams that are figuring out ways and using personalization of medicine and doing genetic research, you know, on things like spinal muscular atrophy or Huntington's disease, or even things like Alzheimer's disease to figure out uh, ways to recruit for clinical trials and repurpose medicines for the right way. Personalization and the connected data analysis that really helps us find these patients, develop therapies to help them and really personalize their care is a huge piece of it. But there is huge potential for um, the impact of reaping the benefits of connected data sources in major diseases as well. If you think about those diseases that affect huge portions of the population, even small improvements in treatment paradigms can have enormous impact on reducing healthcare costs and improving patient outcomes across the system. If you think about something like heart failure, where it manifests in so many different ways clinically, it's really hard to find a one-size-fits-all approach that physicians or healthcare practitioners can really use to figure out what's the right treatment paradigm. But with enough data that you can analyze across different groups and different um, different types of demographics, you can start to see certain patterns emerge that can really help aid in that clinical decision-making, particularly when you partner it with AI and machine learning. And Jen, it's so interesting because I think another pillar of this is just the fact that we now have widespread automation, right? And you think about all the data that we just talked about and how difficult it is for humans to stay up to date on treatment options and how time consuming and essentially ineffective it is. And now we're at this point where automation is starting to be able to help drive some of this. And you mentioned AI. I think that is going to be one of the areas that we see really start to prop up the ability to drive greater personalization because it's going to it's going to help right take all this data and create more predictive types of um, of underlying information that can then be utilized to apply in you know one on one interactions with individuals and or in their treatment paradigm. Yeah, it'll be interesting, Mindy, to see how that happens because, you know, we have had conversations with groups and organizations that are literally going hand by hand through um, records, right, to collect data on things like COVID or, or rare diseases. And we're seeing automation being the savior for a lot of those organizations to, to cut costs. But the macro level impact, I think, on personalization of medicine is proactive treatment, right? We know that in order for us to, to improve our health as a society on the globe is to prevent the disease from even happening. And that's you know this idea of upstream detection. And that requires an understanding of personalization of medicine and each patient and their risk factors. And we know that AI and, and behavioral data and the automation of data will identify things like risky behavior, the predisposition to certain conditions, and I was, I was doing some research on this, and there's a recent study um, by healthcare decision makers that Intel did that revealed the proportion of respondents who are using or will use AI to improve healthcare outcomes, and that talks about a little bit about the proactivity of healthcare, has actually nearly doubled since the onset of the pandemic. So, you know, in a year, in a few months, that has doubled. 
Um, and what AI can do, and as someone that is not an expert in AI, it can not only enable predictive analytics for early intervention, it can also support this idea of clinical decision-making, right? And we've talked about clinical decision-making and, and helping providers be a little bit more automated in how they make decisions and, and minimizing variation. Clearly, there's huge value in the ability to bring together abundant data across sources, apply AI to see the patterns that emerge to really guide clinicians to provide that personalized recommendation for patients. But the potential of personalized care isn't just limited to the practice of medicine. It's also reshaping the way that therapies are developed and delivered. We'd be remiss if we didn't kind of talk a little bit about kind of some centralized government initiatives that have occurred over the years around this precision medicine and how, you know, centrally folks have been trying to reshape the way these therapies are developed and delivered. And one that comes to mind is the um, precision medicine initiative in 2015, which was, you know, five or six years ago under the Obama administration. And the idea of that was to kind of introduce us to precision medicine um, uh, around the country and to tailor treatment and prevention strategies. A lot of what we've talked about already, but kind of funding it at the central level. And I think they recognized and, and the folks that surrounded that um, initiative really recognized that variation and eliminating unwarranted variations can really reduce the cost of patient management and increase outcomes as much as 35%. And if you recall, the Precision Medicine Initiative in 2015, Jen and Mindy, was actually driven by, you guessed it, health data. And that was gathered from more than a million of U.S. citizens that was all volunteer. And that um, really helped uh, create this idea of big data, because as we talked about, we need to pull this information. And across the pond in the U.K., there was and there is the 100,000 Genomes Project, which really gathered data from almost 100,000 NHS, the National Healthcare System, patients with cancer or rare diseases. And there were actionable findings from that project in around one in four rare disease patients, while 50% of cancer cases suggested that the potential for a therapy or clinical trial. So really great stuff around the way therapies are developed and delivered from a centralized uh, governmental uh, initiative perspective. For sure, we've seen the potential of precision medicine really be unleashed on the field of oncology. I think you could say that's probably the field that's been most impacted with, you know, 90% of the precision treatments approved in 2018 were cancer therapies. Um, they're not necessarily tailored to a specific individual. We're talking about precision medicine, but they are allowing for more detailed stratification by looking at the mutations on their tumors that could be driving cancer cell survival and growth. So when you think about precision medicine, there's really that those two elements. There's the therapy itself and there's that diagnostic test. So by using diagnostic tests to find certain biomarkers, what we're seeing is regulatory agencies like the FDA or the EMA increasingly approving these tumor agnostic treatments. Um, if you think about, you know, the blockbuster therapy, Keytruda, the immunotherapy that targets specific biomarkers rather than um, a certain type of tumor really explode. We're seeing huge amounts of approvals for certain subtypes of cancers that are marked by a particular biomarker combination. 
one particular therapy that really kind of highlights also the individualized nature of cancer treatments, we saw introduced several years ago with these CAR-T therapies, right? Where the process is that you remove T cells from a patient's blood, um, modify them to target tumor cell antigens, and then infuse them back into the bloodstream. And that's about as personalized as you can get, right? Because you're doing it one by one patient by patient. And so I think we are starting to see these treatments really come to the market. The big challenge I think about though around these is how many health centers are going to be able to actually deliver them, right? And have the capability and the know-how to do it. So there is definitely some some systematic um, things that we are going to need to address as more and more of these individualized and personalized therapies come to market. Yeah, maybe you talk about challenges and, and you went right into CAR-T, but from a macro level, there, there are other challenges. And I think, you know, in a survey, there was something like just 20% had over precision medicine programs. Um, and this is, you know, right as we entered the pandemic. So even though things are growing and expanding and this idea is happening, um, you know, it's still a minority of, of acute care organizations that have it. And, you know, I'll add too that primary care providers rather than specialists and subspecialists have been the front line of the genetic and genomic testing in their organizations. And that's difficult because they have so many other things going on in there in the visit. So I just found that interesting. And there's costs associated with the genomic sequencing. And I know you'll talk a little bit about the costs in development as well. And, um, you know, Overall, there's also a lack of expertise. We're still in early days and many physicians, as I mentioned, struggle to accurately interpret test results, for example, without special assistance. And um, Cardinal Health found in a 2018 survey that you know, a majority of physicians who don't use genomic tests avoid them because it's very difficult to interpret the data. Yes, and Ryan, I think from a development challenge perspective, there are definitely growing pains associated with moving a life sciences pipeline towards drugs that are targeting smaller patient subgroups. And you know, right up there with them is this idea of cost, which you mentioned on, on the other side of things, but cost in, in the life sciences sector is also um, a challenge. These companion diagnostics do not come cheap. And so while they're difficult to understand. They're also difficult to afford. And so I think finding and validating biomarkers to guide things like targeted therapies is, is really a lengthy task. And you know, analyzing all this vast amount of data often requires new teams with really specialized knowledge in order to get there. And then you add the, the fact that there's an expense of incorporating a whole new set of processes into innovative trial designs when it comes to these types of therapies. And I think there's also an extra enrollment burden in small in dealing with small patient subgroups. It's really hard to identify them and it's difficult to recruit. So I think on the life sciences side, while there definitely is a hunger for, for moving towards more personalized and, and targeted therapies, it is not without um, a lot of change that has to go in on within the organization to get there. One of the things that could really help alleviate some of that burden, um, a cool example I thought was this idea of a virtual twin, uh, which is a three-dimensional analytical model that's built to represent the physical size, shape, and behavior 
of something using uh, data and machine learning. And it really allows for that trial and error experimentation to determine how you can achieve a precise outcome. So that's very technical, but I think interesting for us is its application in healthcare. We're starting to see things like the Living Heart Project, which was launched in 2014 uh, with the hope that they could create a virtual twin of the human heart. Um, and they were able to reproduce virtually any cardiovascular condition and start to safely test treatment options. So we're seeing medical device manufacturers such as Boston Scientific start to use these virtual twins to test devices. We're seeing doctors at top hospitals like Boston Children's using it as a way to plan out surgical procedures with more predictable outcomes. Um, and there's, I think, an opportunity for pharmaceutical and life science companies to see really early on how certain cell level drug interactions can ultimately affect organ impact. And one day that these virtual patients or virtual twins could become almost like medical crash test dummies for these new innovations and act as surrogates to replace some of the animal testing and human testing burden that coming up with these more and more personalized therapies puts on these organizations. Ultimately, right, there is significant potential in this idea of personalization and one size does not fit all. And when you think about the core of what's driving it, it's really this idea of patient centricity and moving the patient and the customer to the center of our healthcare system. Mindy, I think as healthcare leaders pursue this shift, there are a few questions they should really be reflecting on for their organization. I think first, really thinking about, do they have the resources in place in terms of people, process, or technology to support this change? Or should they be looking externally and considering some of those partnerships uh, that we've so often talked about throughout the first part of this season of trending health? I think second is thinking about how does this fit into their organization's strategy and how will they capture value from it in terms of how do they balance the costs of pursuing this new effort with potentially the overall uh, value generated or the cost of care saved? And finally, thinking about what is the mindset shift or the culture change required to really help change the thinking around the practice of this type of healthcare? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode, where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.